So the title of my paper is Speaking as the People. And because I tend to wander and drift, I'm going to have to read from it instead of speak eloquently the way Raya and Marwan did. Speaking for myself, I think possibly the most breathtaking, moving, maybe irreversible feature of the events we now call the Arab uprisings was the fearless claiming of the voice of the people, issuing the call to bring down the system to court. They said, Ashab yurid skat nizam. We should probably dis discuss the difficulty in translating this, but let's say in English, the people want the downfall of the system, maybe the downfall of the regime, depending on how you want to translate it. Speaking as the people in this way implies no timetable except immediately, no conditions or negotiations, and often an external projection of unison of the people despite internal debates that were certainly happening in, in squares and back alleys and, and rooms. The conflictual space between the people and their management by the configuration of the state and those who it deputizes was thrown open in these events. Now that time has passed since the initial and widespread global circulation of now iconic images of occupied Tahrir Square, for the first part of my talk, imagine those images that you think of Tahrir Square. Um, I think now it becomes crucial to ask, what does it mean to speak as the people? And to what extent does speaking about these events seem to compel us to speak in the echo, in the replay of those events? Another way of saying the mediatic afterlife of the political commitments put on display in those images. I'm not sure that we here in the academy have actually arrived at an analysis of uh, the uprisings sufficient to the event. I'm going to say that this is in part because we have yet to fully comprehend their mediation, which is to say the temporal and spatial formation of these events in their full socio-technical complexity. In the interest of pushing this conversation further, and I've, I was so delighted to hear what the two of you had to say, in the interest of pushing this further, I'd like to ask us some questions uh, that I would like us to maybe consider or say, no, those are the wrong questions and move on from them. I think there are at least three points of critical inquiry that I find myself coming back to. So it's always, it always sucks when academics number the things that they're about to say. The first question has to do with the event of the uprisings and their historicity. Namely, are we still in the event of the Arab uprisings? By we here, I mean those people seeking to make sense of the event, which is, which is maybe itself a way of continuing the life of the event. I don't mean the specific actions and comings together that are referred to by the 18 days in Tahrir, or the protests in Bahrain that then led to the demolition of the Pearl Roundabout. I always thought that was an ugly roundabout when I drove around it to begin with. But it was itself part of a counter-revolutionary crackdown that sought to erase the material grounds uh, for common and oppositional memory. Are we who want to understand these events already the kind of too late that leads to giving ex post facto coherence, ex post facto coherence uh, to what happened before? Or conversely, are we too early in that we confidently pronounce something dead simply because it doesn't move in the way that it once did? Namely, like in the way that it seemed to move in uh, cell phone footage and live satellite feeds from rooftops. Or are we too late in the sense that cameras are no longer watching because presumably there's nothing to see? Much like the injunction by the police to move along, there's nothing to see here. 
Or I could go back again. Are we too early in that the cameras have yet to come back yet? Have academic analyses sunk back into those affects and common sense perspectives that say uh, resistance is futile or impossible, that there is no alternative, there is no other way of being? All those ways of being in the wake of events where things seem possible that deepen the crisis without throwing it into crisis. People have diagnosed this condition in a number of ways, as cynicism without the enthusiasm of its convictions, as cruel optimism, so on and so forth. This brings me to my second point, Marx and the mole. I think this is one of my favorite animals in Marx's bestiary. So in the 18th Brumaire, Marx invokes the image of a mole to historicize the state and its overcoming. He says, but the revolution is thoroughgoing. It is still traveling through purgatory. It does its work methodically. He's actually borrowing this image from Hegel, who's kind of like Marx's source code, who in Hegel was citing the moment in Hamlet when the prince and Horatio tried to find the right grounds on which to swear an oath, describing the voice of Hamlet's father, which persists in speaking to them from beneath the stage. Right? What a dramaturgy of historical becoming and swearing to the truth. Instead of Hamlet, maybe we need to cite something sillier, like Monty Python. Like maybe we need to make sure the corpse is devoid of life before tossing it onto the wagon. It might not be dead yet. Every moment it starts to seem like the Arab uprisings are over, and I should say also here their non-Arab counterparts. Arab is a weird designation to me. I think that we ought to instead ask, where is the burrowing currently happening? They are called underground movements for a reason, often forgotten by those modernist sensibilities that believe the only moment of the political is when the microphone is grabbed, the police are face down, and truth is spoken to power in public and loudly for all to hear. Such moments are moving, and, but are just one tactical moment that can come at great cost and differential levels of cost. Different people get policed differently for speaking out like that. And doing so oftentimes involves an unshakable conviction that doing so inherently sets history into motion or at least gives historicity to those outside of its movement. There are other ethics than that of transparency, other subversions than the ones that the censors are able to pick up on. Why not also learn from those practices? So I guess we're sort of like touching on a similar nerve here. Some of those practices are defined by desperate times, and perhaps there are times when knowing how to go underground and remain undetected is of value. There are different strategies of publicity, one could say conversely, different ways of relating to the terms and conditions of network visibility, different ways of being on the grid without being picked up by it. Many of these are currently at play, actively being employed. Uh, there are ways of being overlooked by design that oftentimes are the, the ethic which uh, many political movements function. If we want to make sense of the afterlife of the Arab uprisings, I think we need to be able to attend to what's actually trying to avoid being looked at. Third and last point, I promise. My third point of entry is that to truly understand the Arab uprisings is to try to give a much better answer as to what mediation itself is, what kind of technocultural practices it entails, what infrastructures give it ground, what modes of becoming it entails, or what phenomenological experiences it shapes and ungrounds. If we cannot reduce what machines and systems do to the moment when they produce or encounter the human, much as commodities and workers are more than the labor that produces them, 
then what epistemic and methodological shifts are required to give an adequate account of major events such as the uprisings? We have to be able to make sense of media in the uprisings because in, in large part they give intelligibility to them. They're a very particular kind of event, one defined by the weird peculiarities of media technologies, things which are utterly inhuman. I hope this doesn't sound too oblique. I mean that rather than just asking what the people want, how they express themselves with media, we also need to grasp how the people intersects with the biopolitical management of the population, how the shaping of life itself depends on technical means. And who is this we that we imagine exists as something apart from the media forms that bring publics together? So let's follow that iconic image of Tahrir Square with another, El Sisi on election day, a buffoon without knowing it. In what ways do the media theologies of state power draw on the rhetoric of the people for their governing modalities? If to speak on the people justifies revolution, how does speaking on behalf of uh, protecting the people justify their repression or extermination? I ask these questions because like, they really trouble me, because it has become too easy to talk about the uprisings as though we have understood them, or that their significance is already clear to an us definitively standing outside of them not on the street, not in their wake, geographically and historically separated from the event. If we want to understand what it meant to speak as the people in the uprisings, we need a critical understanding of how that mode of speaking lives in the current moment and the ways that our current moment remains in it. It gets too soon to know what happened, maybe. That's it.